The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like to take you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 25. And we have a, le- a rather lengthy passage of Scripture to consider today. And it's unusual for us to take this much text at one time. But this is all one story and not particularly difficult. And I think that we will be able to finish all of it today. Uh, I know there are some of you that would prefer that we move much more quickly through the Gospel of Matthew. And you, you would have been happy if we had been done about four years ago. This message is for you because this is about as fast as it gets as we take this much text. I want to begin reading today at verse number 14, and this is known as the parable of the talents, and it's part of the Olivet Discourse in which Jesus was teaching his disciples about the second coming. And this is a parable about what we should be doing as we wait for Jesus to return. So let's stand, if you would, please. And we are going to read this uh, long text beginning at verse number 14 and the parable of the talents. Verse number 14, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord." He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at thy my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents, for unto every one that hath shall be given. And he shall have abundance, but for him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Help us as we look into this text uh, just to learn something about uh, your magnificence, Lord, and how to wait for you as we're looking for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. I make it a point almost every year to, well, every year actually, more, sometimes more than once in a year to read through the Bible. And I'm always happy when I come to chapter 37 and there begins the story of Joseph. I think most Christians really love the story of Joseph. I mean, we've grown up with that, with a coat of many colors, and we like that story. And it's really a great story. I don't have time to talk to you about it today, but we all know that it's, it's one about a young man who had long, hard years of separation from his family, who endured the hatred of his brothers, who for many years was in prison in very trying circumstances. And through all, that, uh, all of that time, he had this one great character trait that the Bible brings out about him, and that is that he always trusted in God. He was always faithful to believe in God. Faithfulness paid huge dividends for Joseph, and you can see that in the end of his life. But of course, Joseph wasn't the only one that we find in the Bible that was faithful. In the book of Hebrews, there, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole chapter there that's filled with people that were faithful to the Lord God and they reap the benefits of their faithfulness. Now, faithfulness is a great attribute for a Christian to have, but faithfulness is not something that we have that just naturally arises from within us. We have to be taught faithfulness. And the one who is our greatest teacher about faithfulness and the greatest example that we have is none other than our Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ who is always faithful. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse number 13, Paul talked about the faithfulness of God and he said, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And so when we are weak in our faith and, and we can't see things clearly and we start to falter in our faith, we can always remember this, that God will be faithful to us. In 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3, it says, But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. These are verses that tell us that God is always dependable. God is always faithful to keep his promises, to provide for his people. In the Psalms, David often talked about faithfulness. He said in Psalm 40, I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. Faithfulness is one of the great attributes of God. Now, faithfulness is not like some of his other attributes. Some of God's attributes are incommunicable. That is, we can't possess these particular attributes. We can't be omnipotent as God is, that he's all-powerful. We can't be omniscient, that is, know everything. We can't be omnipresent, and that is to fill heaven and earth as God fills it. But God has given us this attribute, this one that we can share with him that is communicable, and that is this attribute of faithfulness. And that's the teaching of this parable. We are to be faithful. We are called Christians, which means that we are to be Christ-like. And because Christ was always faithful, if we're going to be like him, then we must remain faithful. 
And this is what God expects from His people as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when He comes back to this earth, that He will find us as His servants being faithful. And that's the teaching that we find in the parable. Christians are to be characterized by faithfulness. Now, last week we looked at the parable of the ten virgins. We saw that five of them were ready. Five of them were prepared for the Lord's return. And that parable was mostly about just knowing that Jesus Christ is coming again. Being aware that he's coming. Being prepared for his coming. But as we come to this parable today, the Lord adds another dimension to that. And that is not only are we to be just watching for him to come, just just be aware that he's coming, but we are also to be doing and are doing the works that we do for him are the proof that we really do believe that Jesus is coming again. To be ready means to serve. It means to be busy occupying ourselves with this great work that God has called us to do. Now, as I said a moment ago, the parable we've read is not really difficult to understand. But for some reason, faithfulness is very difficult for Christians. It's very hard for Christians to remain faithful. It seems like so many are not faithful to the Lord. Now, this, this is a story about a man who left his home and traveled to a far country. And without laboring the point... The man that it's talking about here is the same one who is the Lord of the house in Matthew 24, 45, in that passage that we studied. He is the same as the bridegroom that we find in the beginning of this particular chapter, chapter 25. And I'm sure that you recognize that this person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord who has left this earth and he left with a promise that he would return. Now, in those days, it, it wasn't uncommon for a well-to-do property owner to have many slaves, and he would have holdings in other countries. Occasionally, he would have to go to inspect the other places where he owned his property. And when he would go, he would leave his slaves in charge of his house, and he would leave them with his investments. He would leave them with his money, and the, and the slaves were expected to carry on as if he was there and to take care of all of his property. Now, because the distances were great and travel was slow, often he would be gone for long periods of times. And so while he was away, it was the slave's responsibility to conduct the business, to take care of all the property, to make sure that all of his investments are doing well. Now, when you think about slavery in New Testament times, you, you really can't think about this in terms of what American slavery was like because it wasn't like that at all. Here we're not talking about taking people out of tribal situations or places where people are not very highly civilized. But the slaves that we're talking about here, the, the servants that were chosen, were those who were often artisans. These are people that are astute business types and they would be snatched up by the Roman army and they would be taken as prisoners and they would be bought and they would be sold. And it wasn't uncommon for these highly trained artisans and, and business people to be left in charge of the household of the money of the master of the house. And so often they would be left with large sums of money because the master knew that he could trust them. They were astute in business and he expected that they could do what he charged them to do and that is to enlarge upon the investments that have been entrusted to him. This is exactly what we have in the story. 
These are servants that have been given considerable sums of money and they are expected to grow the investment. One servant is given five talents, another two, another, uh, the third servant given one talent. And when we speak of talents here, you really need to understand what this means. It's not a sum of money in itself, but a talent is a measure of weight. It could be a bag of coins, and the value of that bag would depend upon what kind of metal was used for the coins, whether it's gold or silver or copper. And since uh, the silver coin was the most common, what we have here is probably uh, a very expensive bag of money weighing five talents or two talents or one talent, whichever one that you want to consider, all of them are considerable amounts of money. And so the owner of the house, the master, expected that these slaves would increase the amount of money that was given to them. And that's exactly what happened, at least in two of the cases. Two two servants increased their amount of money, but the third servant did not, and so he was punished. Well, it's a fairly simple story. And what we have left to do is to apply this parable to the second coming of Christ. Now today I want to give you five lessons about being faithful. Five lessons in this parable that we can learn about being faithful to the Lord as we wait for his return. The first thing that we have to remember is that everything is God's to give. Everything is God's to give. These servants are not working with their own money. The master called them aside and he distributed to each of them a certain amount of money. And the issue is not really the amount of money that he gave them, but what was it that they would do with the money? I know that there are those that are in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and they would take this parable and they make it all about money. And they'll say things to you like, what you really need to do is cast your bread upon the water. You need to sow seeds of faith. And if you will do that, then God is going to bless you. God is going to increase you. And you will be dripping with money. And they're always using those biblical metaphors. And they're telling you that God is going to make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. And you may be surprised to hear me say this, but there is some truth to what they say. There definitely is a reward, but what they have wrong is the timing of the reward and the place of the reward. Jesus is talking about the second coming, and he's not talking about giving a reward right now. It's not a reward that's for this earth, but when Christ returns, the reward that we'll receive is going to be in heaven. And most of these people are not content to wait on a time to come, but rather they want their reward right now. A future reward is not good enough for them, and it really doesn't work with their get-rich schemes to, to have a reward that's for the future. I mean, how is the preacher going to get rich? How is he going to have a jet? How is he going to have gold and silver on his fingers and rings and houses and all of that? How would he have all of that if the reward is just future? And so what he does is he misleads the people into thinking that God is going to give all of these things right now and we're going to be rich right now. And if people believe that, then they'll send the money to the preacher in order to get their reward. But Jesus is not talking about a reward for this life. He's talking about what we will get in heaven. Now, be that as it may, he's really not talking here about that kind of money in the first place. It's not really about money. It's about the gifts and the abilities that are given to each of us and what God expects us to do with what we've been given. 
Everything that we have comes from God and is to be used for God. James wrote, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he tells us again, What you have received came from God. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? So everything that we have comes from God. And I'll take that even a step farther. Even your ability to use your abilities comes from God. Everything that you do for the Lord comes from the power of the Holy Spirit who works in you. And when you try to do something outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, it's never going to work. Now this ought to tell you something very important. Everything that you have comes from God, your health, your wealth, your abilities. And so that means that you have no right to use anything that God has given you without asking him how he wants it to be used. Now for those of you that are concerned about making this about money, the scripture says that it's God who who gives the power to give wealth. And so you better... Consider how wisely that you use the money that God gives you and make sure that you've given him everything that he requires. Now notice a word that keeps recurring in this text. Verse number 14 says servants. Verse 21 says servant. Verse 23 says servant. Verse 26 says servant. And verse number 30 says servant. And so whether a good and faithful servant or a wicked, slothful servant, the Bible is teaching us here that all of us are servants. Whether we are saved or lost, all are servants of God, and everything that everybody has has been given from God. And so that's the first lesson you have to learn about what happens in this world and what, who owns what's in the world. Every gift that, ha- that you have is God's to give. Now the second lesson that we learn here is that resources are man's to manage. The second principle is a lesson that each of us are stewards, that we have been given a stewardship, and a steward is a person who manages whatever God gives. And we are required to manage what he gives well. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and the stewards and the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man may be found faithful. I think it's interesting that in the language of the New Testament, the abilities that God gives are often spoken of in monetary terms. As a monetary value that we are to keep and to keep safely. Now, if you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I can give you a couple of instances of this. In 1 Timothy, Paul was instructing Timothy, the young pastor, about being faithful in the Lord's service. And he spoke about God's commandments and about the doctrines of the faith. And he taught him about sound preaching and about the gospel and about teaching God's people. And then at the end of the epistle, after he'd finished all these things, all the instructions that he had given, we come to chapter 6 and verse number 20, and we get this very important phrase. Paul said, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. 
And then if you'll flip over a page or so to 2 Timothy 1.14, we have the same kind of language again where he says to Timothy, the good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And if you wanted to put those verses into modern terms, Paul is saying exactly this, Timothy, guard the deposit. He's speaking to him in banking terms. Timothy, guard the deposit. What God has given you, keep that, be faithful with it, use it, but don't lose it. And the parable here tells us the same thing, that God has given you resources and God expects you to manage them for him and not for yourself. All of this belongs to God and he's gone away for a time and when he returns, he expects that when he comes back, he'll find you faithful using all of those resources that he has given. Then our third lesson is that God accounts according to ability. God accounts according to ability. Now we notice that these three servants are all given different amounts. And the text says that everyone was given according to his ability. Verse number 15 says, He gave to every man according to his several ability. Now I don't want you to get mad this morning. Don't get mad about this. But you should recognize that not all of us are gifted equally. God does not give you the same abilities as another person. There's an interesting verse in the Psalms that says that God knows our frame. God knows exactly what we can handle. It's like this. It's like a, a one-ton truck is capable of handling a certain load. A two-ton truck can handle more of a load. God knows what you're able to handle. And what he doesn't expect is for a, a one-ton truck to handle a two-ton load. And, and maybe that's not such a good example because don't go away mad because I called you a one-ton person or something like that. But don't take offense. But God knows our frame. He knows exactly what we can handle. And God did not give you the same abilities as the person who sits next to you. There are five talent people, and there are two talent people, and there are one talent people. There is a reason why I am not the chairman of Microsoft. I don't know what it is right now, but there's some kind of a reason I'm not the chairman of Microsoft. There's a reason why that you're not the, the uh, CEO of Chase Bank. God gives people with different abilities. And I think about this sometimes when I think about pastors of churches. Why am I not the pastor of a megachurch? And I'll be for the first to admit that there are men who are much more gifted than I. And I applaud God for their ability. I don't applaud them because they usually do enough of that themselves, but I applaud God for their ability. Uh, God has gifted certain men to handle big churches, and they're able to grow those churches through the work of the Holy Spirit. They know how to handle those kinds of things. I wouldn't be very good in a church like that because I don't have those kinds of abilities. There are people with more abilities than others. And when I think about five talent people in the history of the church, I think of people like Charles Spurgeon. And I think of people like George Whitfield. We're talking about two men who are well beyond the norm of Christians. Spurgeon had the gift of total recall. On a Saturday night, he could get a sermon together, and on Sunday morning, he'd get into the pulpit, and he could blow your socks off with it. George Whitfield made the gospel sing sermons that were so eloquent, they were like music to the ears, and because of his preaching, there were thousands of people who came to Christ. 
But we look in the history of the church and there are those that have lesser abilities. There are good churchmen who didn't reach the level of Spurgeon or of Whitfield or of Jonathan Edwards. And these are two talent servants. And they might be men like John Gill or Thomas Manton or Andrew Fuller. And then there are one talent people. And it's all right to be a one talent person if God has called you and you use the talent that God has given you. And in this case, it just turns out that the one talent servant was a bad example. And we'll see in a minute that he represents a person in the church who is an unbeliever. And so these are people that are one talent people. This case is an unbeliever. And we may think that these people are good churchmen. I would put someone like Charles Finney in that group. I would put someone like the Pope in that group. And though I can't judge the heart of another person, I can listen to what they teach, and I would put Joel Osteen in this group. Now, here's the real interesting part. Should you be upset that the person next to you has been given more ability than you? Should you be upset that maybe I can halfway manage to preach a sermon to you on Sunday morning, and I can get five points together, but if you had to do that, that... It would take you six months to do it. And then you'd be scared to death when you got up here and you'd probably forget three-fourths of what you were supposed to say. I mean, is that a, is, is that a bad thing? Should you, be, should you be mad because God says you can do this, but maybe you can't? Should you be upset that, that Lucy and Melissa can make beautiful music come out of these instruments, but your talent is to sing like a bullfrog? There are people that are like that. I can remember a few years ago that I was standing in the usual spot right over there before, uh, well, it was as the last song was being sung before the offering, and the usher came up behind me, and what I heard was sounded like the sound system was about to blow up. And I, and I turned around, and it was Jeff Chambly, and I, and I think he was singing, at least that's what he was supposed to be doing. Should you be jealous that you don't have Renee Taylor's voice? Well, notice something here. The master gave according to ability, and when that ability was returned, the servants that were faithful were given exactly the same commendation. Both of them received the master's highest praise. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, why didn't the master praise the one more who had the highest return? In business, that's what we would do. The person who makes 500,000 is surely going to be applauded more than the one who makes 200,000. One who turns 500 into a million gets more praise than one who takes 200 and turns it into 400. Although the, the, the increase, the percentage-wise, is exactly the same, yet there's a 600,000 differential between those two. And so I love the guy who could take $200,000 if I ever had anything like that and turn it into 400000 I love him. But if he can take five hundred and turn it into a million, that's my man. Why isn't God like that? Why doesn't that matter at all to God? Well, first of all, because there's nothing that you can do that can enrich him. Your abilities don't actually increase the value of his holdings because he owns it all anyway. So he's not interested in the quantity. God is interested in the quality. 
He's interested in the faithfulness. He wants to know if you're going to take what he entrusts you to do and are you going to be faithful with that? And are you going to stick with that? Are you going to guard what he's given? Are you going to use it? Are you going to increase it? And most of all, are you going to use it to glorify him? And so he doesn't ask you to produce according to the ability of Charles Spurgeon. You are to produce according to the ability of... And you can place your name in that blank. It's not God's desire for all of us to be the same. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where we can see this very clearly. Maybe you think that everybody should be equal and it's not fair if we aren't. And by the way, folks, if we're talking about money, which we aren't, I can tell you this, that wealth redistribution, that is not God's plan for society. It's not God's plan to make everybody equal, in case you didn't know that. I just threw that in for you. So maybe you're upset that you're not the head of a department of church or at a church, at the church, or maybe you're not a deacon. Maybe you think that you ought to be in charge of the soundboard and you can turn me off any time that you like. Maybe you think that you ought to be up here preaching the message, but let's look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 4. It says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will." Now the Spirit then is the one who gifts people and chooses what gift they're going to have and it's not you that chooses that. God wants a diversified body. He wants multiple talents to do multiple tasks and we all can't do the same thing and we're not all qualified to do the same things. So we don't want to overload the church with 40 deacons and you don't need 10 people that are the pastor of the church. There are other issues that need to be taken care of, other places where people need to work. God has talented people with certain abilities to be used in the church so all of the work gets done. And so here is the thing. All of you have something that you can contribute. God has given you something and that something doesn't have to be fancy at all. I mean, it's not as if we're in a great competition for the, church, for the top prize and, and people are going to get trampled on the way there to get it. No, God has given you something that you can do and you're to be faithful to do that to the ability that God gives. And if you are faithful to do it to that ability, then you will get the same reward as Charles Spurgeon. You'll get the same reward as George Whitfield. Now, those men were given more, and more was expected of them. We can read their history. We read about Spurgeon, and Spurgeon started a preacher's school, and Spurgeon uh, published thousands of sermons, and, 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 and Spurgeon wrote for the Sword and the Trial magazine that really helped the masses of people. He did more because he had the ability to do so much more. But God does not expect you to do what Spurgeon did. He expects you to, 
to do what with what he's given you. Now, Spurgeon would never have limited himself to less doing less than what his ability was. And God expects the same from you. He doesn't expect you to do Spurgeon's work, but he does expect you not to limit yourself below what God has given you. And so if you throw all of your effort into what God has given you, then he'll bless you for that and he'll reward you for that. But if you're coasting, then God is very unhappy. And if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. I was talking to Chuck at the door just a few weeks ago. We were discussing outreach. And Chuck said to me, well, I don't know what to do if somebody asks me a question. And he said, I don't have the ability to answer the way that you can answer. And he said, I can't do that. But then he said, I can clean the floor. Do you know how Chuck and I became such good friends? I was, I was preaching on one Sunday morning, and I made a comment that my wife wanted me to paint the fence. And I had neither the time nor the inclination to paint the fence. And the next thing that I knew, Chuck showed up at my house with a sprayer and spent a whole day painting my fence. Now, he saw that I had a need, and that was his way of saying, I can contribute. I can help somebody. He could do what he was gifted to do. This is what God wants. Put yourself in the service of others. That's using the talents that God gives. You don't have to go to Africa to pass out Bibles. It doesn't have to be some spectacular thing that you do. Just use what God has given you. And don't cry about the fact that you can't do what somebody else does. God knows what he wants you to do. And so you just do what God wants you to do. And did you know this? That even the youngest Christian that God has given some kind of ability? Someone told me about, where's Josh? There's Joshua, Joshua Kaczynski. Somebody told me about Joshua at church camp that he was just a servant who was picking up and cleaning up after other people. Who, who does that if he doesn't do it? Now, I would ask you, is that five-talent Spurgeon type of service? Well, no, you wouldn't say that. But in God's eyes, it's exactly the same. The person who uses the ability that God gives will receive the same commendation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's why you see a man with five talents get the commendation and a man with two who used all that he had get the very same commendation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, one other point that I should make here is that when we get to heaven, I really do believe that there are going to be some people standing next to the five stars, next to the five talent people right up next to the throne of God. I'd be, I think there are going to be some people there that we would never expect that will be there. I remember when I was young, uh, there were old farmers in the, in the country church where we attended. And, and this was back in the sticks and the hills of Kentucky. And these old farmers, they would sacrifice and they would pray. And they would come to church in their overalls. And, and those, those men could pray the roof off of the church. They weren't preachers. They weren't some great missionaries that were going to go out to a foreign field. They weren't working with huge groups of poor people in the inner cities. But these were men that just stood by the preacher, men who prayed, men who supported their church. They used what God had given them. And I have no doubt in my mind that when we get to heaven, they'll be standing as near to the throne as John Calvin or Martin Luther or, or Beza or Knox or any of them. 
God rewards faithfulness. It's all that it takes. Just be faithful with, with, with what God has given you. Now, fourthly, I want you to see that the reward is more gifts for God's glory. The reward is that the master said he would make the two faithful servants ruler over many things. I think that's an interesting statement. Remember I said this is more about rewards in heaven than about rewards on earth. Perhaps there's an application made here to the millennial kingdom. We could go with that. But what about heaven? There aren't any class distinctions in heaven. So what could he mean here that he'll make them ruler over more? Well, there are some religions like the JWs and the Mormons, and they say that there are levels in heaven, that there are people who reach higher levels when they get to heaven. So I guess there's some people who live in the slums of heaven. Uh, since JWs and Mormons are wrong on just about everything, we really shouldn't spend a whole lot of time indulging their silliness or their deceit, maybe I should say. But I do remember that, that there was an old song that had a line in it that said, just give me a cabin in the corner of glory land. There aren't any cabins stuck in the corner of glory land. There are streets of gold, and there are gates of pearl, and there are walls of diamonds. There is the Lamb of God who is the light of the city. It is degrading to the glory of God to make a suggestion that there is some subdivision in heaven for those who just barely make it in. I don't think that there's any sense when we get to heaven that anyone is any better off than another person. Because the reason that we're there is not us anyway, is it? The reason that we're there is because of Jesus Christ. It's all about him, not about what we've done. We're, here, we're there on his merits. So I don't know how that God's going to do this, but I do know that he has some way of working this out that there are some who enjoy heaven to a greater capacity than others. There is a greater enjoyment, but I don't think there's a sense that anybody thinks that somebody else is enjoying it more. Does that make sense to you? Well, I hope you understand that because I don't. Explain it to me when I'm done here. Some think that heaven is a place to retire. Some think that Oh, it's going to be boring when we get to heaven. We'll rest and we'll sit on clouds and we'll be fanned by the angels and we'll be fed grapes. You've got it wrong. Heaven is bustling with activity. And the servants of God are happy to do everything that there is to do and to do even more. Now you think about it for just a moment, that our service here on the earth is limited by our physical abilities. We get tired we have to rest. We have to stop. We can't go all of the time. We need sleep. All of us are hindered by this great problem that we have of sin. That stops us from serving the Lord the way we want to. But when we get to heaven, all of that's gone. You don't need any sleep. You don't need any rest. You, 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 don't, you don't have any sin to deal with. And so when you get to heaven, you're going to be a super servant of God. And if you love the work of the Lord down here, your mind is going to explode with the possibilities when you get to heaven. These servants didn't say, well, Lord, I, I doubled the amount of money that you gave me. Now I'm ready to sit down and I need to take it easy. No, do, do, do you see here what the joy of the Lord is? The master said, I will make you ruler over many things. The master said, you did such a good job, I'm going to double your workload. And they're okay with that. They were okay with that because that showed that the Lord was pleased with them. And this is what they're all about. They're all about pleasing the Lord. Give me just something else that I can do for Jesus. 
And if you're the church member who's trying to skate through this and you're trying to get out of doing things and, and you're sitting there and you're not doing anything for the Lord and when there's jobs that come up and you won't volunteer and you won't do anything, maybe you'd just like it better if you stayed here when Jesus comes. Service is going to be a big thing when you get to heaven. You're going to be, well, you won't get tired. But maybe you think it's not going to be so great because there's just so much activity that's going. Maybe it's better just to stay here. Well, let me, let me answer that question with the last lesson that we learned from the text. Number five is that God's judgment is always just. His judgment is always just. God knows your heart. You can't fool him. The last servant did nothing with his talent. That, that represents the unbeliever. And, and it's evident that it's an unbeliever because he was cast out. He's punished and everything is taken away from him. Now there are some who are very confused about their theology and they will say, well, this represents a Christian. This is what happens when a Christian doesn't serve the Lord, that the Lord will cast him out and he will lose his salvation. But I would maintain that a person who has no service for the Lord was never a true Christian in the first place. All Christians render some service to the Lord. And so if you live without service, is that, if that's what you are, you live without service to God, then don't count yourself among his servants. Well, this man is not a Christian. That's evident by what he said and what he did. This man had an assessment of his master that was all wrong. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. He said, I know that you're a hard man. I know that you take what's not yours. Now let me explain that to you. There was a lot of thievery that went on in those days among the rich. He said, you reap where you have not sown. It was common for the rich to overreap. What they would do is have their servants drift over into the fields that were next to them, to the neighbor's field, and reap a couple of rows along with theirs. And then he said, you gather where you've not strawed. When they took the wheat to the threshing floor, they would, they would separate the wheat from the chaff. And there were many, many people that were there. They're all doing the same thing. And as the chaff is blowing away and the wheat is settling to the floor, they're gathering to themselves and they get beyond their own pile and they gather some of someone else's. They were always stealing. The rich get richer, don't they? And they get rich by hook or crook. So this servant has accused the master of dishonest practices Watch the next statement, though, very carefully so you don't get confused. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Don't be confused. The master is not admitting to stealing. The Lord doesn't steal. He's actually setting him up for the next statement. If you think, if you think this about me, and if you think that you know this about me, that I am such a hard man, and you thought that you would be punished, then the least that you could have done was to take the money to the bank where it could draw some interest. And what the master did was he exposed his motivation, that it had nothing at all to do with the desire to protect the money. In verse number 25, the original Greek shows the spitefulness of this man. 
He thought that his Lord was unjust. And in verse number 25, he spitefully said, Here is what is yours. Just take it. And this is the person who doesn't care at all that he is a servant who has responsibilities. He's the lost person who defies the Lord. And he, he doesn't believe that his stewardship is important. He has no responsibilities. He's unconcerned about it. And so he's not going to bow his knee to the master. The master is gone. And as far as he's concerned, good riddance and he's probably never coming back. Now, who wonders about the foolishness of such a decision, what this man did. This wasn't good for a master-slave relationship on a physical level. And it's certainly far worse when you think about the master of the Lord that's involved, of the world that's involved here, and, and people who think that they can resist him. Do they seriously think that they're going to escape punishment? Oh, the Lord is always just. And he said to take away from the unfaithful man and give it to the faithful servant. He took away what was not his and he hadn't increased it either so he didn't have anything. And that's what happens when Jesus returns. Whatever you have is not yours anyway. And God's going to take it all away, even the things that you think that you have, and you're not going to get anything. Instead of something, you get nothing. And as we saw just a couple of weeks ago, God comes and takes even the soul away. So here are the master's last instructions, verse number 30. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says the unprofitable servant. Stay right there and look at that. Let me read to you Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Unprofitable means useless. It means of no account. Originally the word referred to filthiness. A person is filthy. What good is a servant who is useless? What good is a servant that will not guard his trust? That servant is no good, and especially no good to God. And so what he says is, cast him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And do you realize that that is an oft-used phrase of Jesus? How many times has he said things like this, weeping and gnashing of teeth? And you thought that Jesus pardoned everybody? Come and meet the real Jesus. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this, this is the parable. It's about faithfulness. And it doesn't matter if somebody is smarter than you or has more opportunity than you or makes more money than you or is better looking than you or can do a lot of things better than you. God knows what he's given each of us and he expects each of us to use what he gives in faithfulness and to use all of it for his glory. And so if he gives you five talents, use five talents. If he gives you two talents, use Two talents. Make the best of what he's given you. Do you understand it? Use what God has given. If you can hammer a nail, then go out there and fix the fence. If you can pray for somebody, if you can comfort somebody with a prayer, go to the nursing home and visit Jack Campbell. 
Spend a little time there. If you can help with children, then why didn't you volunteer for the Pioneer Club? If you can help with Sunday school, why don't you help with that? You know, we have people involved in Sunday school and the Pioneer Clubs for the children, and they have to do it week after week and week after week. They have no relief because nobody wants to help. And the reason they don't help is because somebody has left their talents laying on the shelf. They could be doing something, but they're doing nothing. God says, use the talents that I've given you. I expect you to do that, and you're to present those to me when I return. Now, one last word that I'll give you today. You know if you've been faithful. The servant said, see, here is what I have gained. They knew what the master would find when he came back. So do you. There's no sense fooling yourself with a false assessment. There's no sense saying you've done something that you haven't done. He knows all about it. He knows exactly what he's given and he knows exactly what you have done with it and he is going to deal with you justly. Folks, everyone needs to check out their faithfulness. Here are your lessons. Everything is God's to give. Resources are man's to manage. God accounts according to ability. The reward is more gifts for God's glory. And God's judgment is always just. Keep those things in your mind. Think about that as you wait for Jesus to return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and... This is an awesome responsibility that you've given us. It's not, it's not what we're supposed to do, it's just to sit here and wait and do nothing and act as if we've been given nothing and that's okay. It's never going to be okay. You expect us to serve. The New Testament talks about serving in passage after passage after passage. Jesus talked about serving. Jesus talked about helping people where you can help using the talents that we have been given. Lord, I pray that every person in this church, every member of Berean Baptist Church would lend themselves to do the work of Christ. There's great work to be done, and it takes all of us to do it. Help us to use the abilities that you have given. Bless us today as we sing. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.